Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. Emma Lazarus's sonnet, The New Colossus, ends with these famous lines. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That poem, written to raise money for the pedestal on which the Statue of Liberty would sit, is on a plaque now in the lower level of the pedestal. The poem and the statue both symbolize openness on the part of the United States of America to people not born here, including people seeking asylum. In recent days, there's been a great deal of debate about how we as a country should treat those who seek asylum who have crossed our southwestern border, particularly unaccompanied minors, as well as families. Some Trump officials have claimed that there is an immigration crisis and that the way to fix it is for Congress to act, and they have pointed to two bills under consideration in the U.S. House as potential solutions. I spoke to an expert who has knowledge about both of those bills, and I shared that conversation with you in this episode of Tatter, titled The Golden Door. Would you state your first and last name, please? Sure. My name is Sarah Pierce. So... According to my information, you, Sarah Pierce, are a policy analyst for the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Migration Policy Institute with expertise in U.S. legal immigration processes and actors, the employment-based immigration system. Would that be like H-1B visa issues? Yeah, that's right. And finally, unaccompanied child migrants. Is there anything else that I'm missing in terms of your portfolio? No, that's... That's a pretty comprehensive look. <laughs> I want to talk uh, about policy, um, but uh, before I get to that, I just want to note in passing, I saw that you studied for your master's in El Salvador, among, yeah. among other places? Briefly, yes. In a nutshell, what was the research question or the research questions? So it was a, it was actually a class looking at remittances, and we had the opportunity to travel to El Salvador to meet with a variety of stakeholders in El Salvador related to that issue. And to segue to an issue that's been in the news a lot today, my understanding is, speaking of El Salvador, that it is one of three countries from which the majority of people who have been apprehended uh, at the southwest border of the U.S. uh, in recent years, at least going back to the Obama administration, have come from. That is, the majority have come from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Am I right about that? That's right. And Just for a little bit of historical context, um, I know that during the White House press briefing yesterday, Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen said that, and here I quote her, since this time last year, there has been a 325% increase in unaccompanied alien children and a 435% increase in family units entering the country illegally. Do those numbers that she cited fit with data that you've seen? Uh, and whatever the 
uh, case, can you place uh, those data into a broader historical context? So, for example, what's the tenure trend been? Sure. So, so those are true but misleading data. In reality, 2017 was a wildly low year for apprehensions at our southern border. It seems as if migrants were nervous about the presidency of, of Donald Trump, and they, they tended to, to kind of wait and see what was going on. Um, towards the end of 2017, what we started to see was an uptick of apprehensions at the southern border. And really, what it, rather than a surge, it, this is really kind of just a return to the new normal that we saw before 2017. So 2017 was an abnormally low year. It's dangerous to compare any statistics to 2017. But when you're looking in the broader context, the numbers so far in 2018 really compared to what we saw in 2016, 2015, or they're actually a little lower than what we saw in 2014. And I thought I'd seen some data indicating that going back to, say, I don't know if it was 2007 or earlier, the the annual numbers had been actually considerably higher than what we'd seen in 2016 and uh, 15 and 14. Am I wrong about that? That's right. Yeah, we, we've had periods of, of much higher um, illegal migration at the southern border. What is abnormal about this migration pattern, though, is how many of the individuals being apprehended on our southern border are either unaccompanied child migrants or families. That's a that's a newer phenomena that we really saw surge in 2014, um, and and that's continued through today. Do you have any sense of what's driving that shift? Uh, a lot of push factors coming out of Central America. So. Um, we hear a lot about these individuals being pushed out because of gang violence and, and different security concerns in their home countries. So one of the things that was also mentioned in the press briefing yesterday uh, by both uh, Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen and Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, was that in their view, the onus is on Congress to, quote, fix the problem. Uh, by closing what they refer to as loopholes. So, for example, Nielsen talked about closing loopholes related to asylum, which we're going to definitely talk about later in this interview. And she also referred to two House bills that she hopes are taken up in the next week. Uh, As in her view, and Sanders echoed this, those bills would both, quote, close the loopholes and the families will stay together throughout the proceedings. You've recently written a report about uh, these two bills. Now, I have specific questions about uh, asylum and childhood detentions and about safe third country and and unaccompanied minors. But is there any general context you want to first offer on, say, for instance, how we got to a point of having not one bill in the House but two bills? Well, so these bills are actually meant to deal with a different crisis. So – Last fall, President Trump ended Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, nicknamed DACA. Yep. Um, those individuals um, were supposed to um, have their DACA benefits start expiring this spring, but a few court injunctions have actually kept the program in place so people can continue renewing their benefits. But those court injunctions could go away any day now, so the onus is really on Congress to create a legislative fix for DACA. There was kind of a rise up in the Republican Party in the House related to whether or not they should put forward a piece of legislation to fix DACA and and really vote on it. So the two bills that 
that the House is supposed to take up this week, uh, the immediate goal of those bills was to create a legislative fix to DACA. Um, as sort of an afterthought, they included um, a provision that rolls back certain protections for children and allows children to be detained in immigration detention. And now Republicans are pointing to those bills as kind of a resolution to the crisis at our southern border, but it's very much up for debate whether they would actually fix anything. So before we touch on that issue of childhood uh, detentions, one of the things that caught my eye about your report was the headline. And I realize you may not have written the headline, uh, but uh, House bills would largely dismantle asylum system at U.S.-Mexico border. By the way, did you write that headline? I approved it. I'm not sure that I wrote it. Okay. So so let's talk about asylum. Uh, in the report, you note that under the current system, asylum seekers must pass an initial credible fear interview. Uh, so an asylum officer, and that's not a judge, right? Right. So an asylum officer determines whether there is a, quote, significant possibility that the applicant will qualify for asylum. So before we talk about how the standard would shift into the new bills, can you talk briefly about what happens in that credible fear interview and what kinds of evidence or uh, must be offered uh, by the asylum seeker in order to demonstrate that significant policy that they that they'll qualify that they'll ultimately qualify for asylum. Sure. So I would really think of that interview as kind of a quick and dirty interview. There is no evidence presented. There's very little preparation for that interview, which is why those interviews are just designed to kind of weed out any frivolous claims. Individuals who are applying for asylum, you know, have likely been traumatized by whatever, by whatever they experienced in their home country that has driven them to apply for asylum, but they also might be traumatized by the, the, the journey it took them to get to the United States. So these are not individuals who are in a position to present a clear and thorough case for why they should apply for asylum. And you go on to report that both both of these House bills, and one House bill, I believe, is sponsored by Representative Bob Goodlatte of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And then there's another uh, bill that's been characterized as a compromise bill. But both right. those bills would raise the standard uh, to showing not just a significant possibility, but showing that it's, quote, more probable than not that the claims of fear are credible. Can you talk about why that shift, why that raising of the standard matters? What, what's, what are some of the potential consequences of that change? Well, it has a lot to do with, with what I just said regarding who is, who is going through this credible fear interview. They're migrants that have recently been apprehended at the border. Um, they have endured trauma likely in their home country and likely on their journey here. And so they're not prepared to present a full case for why they qualify for asylum. Uh, which is why this credible fear interview, when it was initially created, it was purposely a low bar uh, just so we could read it, weed out any frivolous claims. So suddenly by raising that standard, you're putting a lot more onus on these on these asylum seekers to really kind of present a full story and a full picture for, for why they're claiming asylum, which is difficult to do. This is not an easy area of the law. And these asylum seekers who are going through the credible fear interviews, they don't have attorneys helping them with this process. So am I speculating too much then to infer that a likely consequence would be that fewer individuals will pass those interviews, and that will include some individuals who actually do have legitimate claims to asylum? I don't think that's, that's a far-reaching speculation by any means. I think that's, that's what would happen. 
So I don't know if you're in a position as an analyst to offer an evaluation of that policy, but does that strike you as sound or unsound policy, that particular shift? Oh, no, I, I think it's a huge problem, just like we presented in our paper. You know, we want to make sure that people who have legitimate asylum claims are allowed to enter the United States and given, you know, fair and timely trials to do so. So another thing that these two bills have in common is both would allow DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, to deport an asylum applicant to a country deemed by the U.S. to be a so-called safe third country. And that's even if the U.S. has no agreement with such a country. Uh, For those of us who don't know what a safe third country is, can you talk about what that means and what would the consequences be of this change? And I would invite you to use Mexico as an example. Sure. So it's not so much that having a safe third country agreement would would permit the United States to deport individuals to it as as much as if an individual first goes to what we have deemed to be a safe third country, that individual cannot try to apply for asylum in the United States. So we actually currently have one of these safe third country agreements with Canada. So if, for example, somehow an individual from El Salvador flew to Canada and then um, you know, walked up to the U.S.-Canada border and tried to apply for asylum in the United States under our safe third country agreement with Canada, we can um, effectively push that individual back into Canada and say, you know, you've already gotten to a safe third country. You can apply for asylum in Canada. Uh, you don't have any reason to apply for asylum in the United States. So what they, these bills would do is they would permit the United States to declare a country as a safe third country without the the overriding agreement that that we have, for example, with Canada. So and, and what that likely the reason they've included that provision likely is because they want the administration to be able to declare Mexico as a safe third country. We we've seen this administration actually try to to get. Mexico to agree to this in negotiations, and they haven't had any success yet. So that's that's the likely intent of this provision. Uh, to con- continue with the example of someone from El Salvador, if someone who originated from El Salvador passes through Mexico under this new provision, they could be turned back into Mexico, even if they have a legitimate claim of asylum, unless they can make a claim that they face a threat in Mexico? Exactly. Yeah, you've got it right. But this would kind of create a diplomatically awkward situation, right? Because Mexico hasn't actually agreed to this safe third country agreement. So in theory, under the provision, we could push that that national of El Salvador back into Mexico. But in reality, El Sal- or sorry, Mexico is not required to accept any non-Mexican nationals um, that they haven't agreed to take. So I'm not sure how this would actually be implemented uh, in reality. As you suggested earlier, both bills, and as you suggest in the report, both bills could potentially, or might actually, I'm not sure which, subject more children to detention. Can you explain what you mean by what you mean there? So the bills roll back protections from um, the Flores settlement. Flores is a a settlement that occurred in the 90s that ruled over um, how unaccompanied children are treated in immigration detention, and then some court cases that happened more recently um, extended those protections to accompanied children, so children who are, are with their parents. And 
those protections in the Floro settlement that say that children need to be held in the least restrictive setting possible. So these bills would roll back those protections in that it would no longer apply to accompanied children. So effectively, it would enable the administration to detain families uh, indefinitely or, or for long periods of time. And regarding unaccompanied minors, would both bills also allow more of them to be turned away when they arrive at the border? Yes. So right now, under our laws, we have special provisions for unaccompanied minors who are not from non-contiguous countries. So for example, you know, the biggest example we see is our individuals from uh, the, the Northern Triangle countries of Central America. So when any Whenever an unaccompanied child migrant approaches our southern border and they're from one of those three countries, they are permitted to enter the country. Um, they are placed in the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which tries to resettle them mm-hmm. uh, within the United States, while at the same time they're placed into long-term deportation proceedings in which they can apply for asylum or other immigration benefits. These bills would roll back those protections and would instead say that all unaccompanied children approaching our southern border would instead be given a cursory interview to make sure that they aren't victims of trafficking um, and that they don't have a fear of returning to their home country. And uh, assuming they, they don't pass either of those tests, the children would be deported. How do these two bills differ? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> they don't they don't differ in a lot of respects, um, and I'm not sure that we've done a thorough analysis of the ways the bills differ. Um, the only one that I know of off the top of my head is there are certain, in the Goodlatte bill, there are certain provisions um, that would create negative consequences for individuals inside the United States that come forward to claim unaccompanied child yep. migrants yep. Who, who say they want to sponsor the unaccompanied child migrants. Under the Goodlatte bill, those individuals um, could be investigated and placed into removal proceedings. In the compromise bill, I think that, that the provision is still there, but that they can't reach back and investigate individuals who had claimed unaccompanied child migrants in the past, I see. if that makes any sense. I see. When I hear all of this, it seems to me that as obviously important as this issue of these child separations uh, is, uh, and in my um, uh, opinion, those separations are cruel and immoral, and they're rightly getting a lot of attention. But I worry that these bills you're describing, which can also have adverse uh, impacts on individuals and families seeking asylum, could fly under the radar. I think it's possible. From what I've seen, the bills have gotten a lot of attention for some of the negative consequences they include. I mean, the Flores, the the rollback of the Flores protections, that doesn't seem like a provision that Democrats are going to be able to swallow anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So I I don't have a lot of hope for these bills in the House. Um, Of course, you know, we'll have to see what happens. But... I, I would hope that if if they got out of the House and, and, and somehow got onto the Senate floor, at least then there would be a more thorough examination of the many, many negative consequences uh, contained or, or many negative provisions rather contained within the bills. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Sarah Pierce for her time and for a great interview. For links to Sarah's bio at the Migration Policy Institute, as well as the recent report that we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find this episode. 
the Golden Door. On a different note, if you like what happens here at Tatter, please offer your support at www.patreon.com slash tatter. Note that there are different levels of support starting as low as $3 per month. Starting at $10 per month, you will be invited to bi-monthly online salons where you can sit in on conversations and even ask questions in conversation with experts, and those conversations will not be recorded, nor will they be available via broadcast. So that'll be your only chance. And at higher levels, specifically $20, you'll get invited to -to face-to-face happy hour sessions, usually in Maine, but sometimes elsewhere. For more information, again, go to www.patreon.com slash tatter. For now, thanks for listening, and be well.